If I asked you about Tuesday, February 3rd, 2004, you would likely tell me that you don't remember anything specific from that far back, but I'm guessing you might. This was two days after the Super Bowl game in Houston, Texas, where Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake performed during a controversial halftime show, and a now infamous wardrobe malfunction led to days of discussion about the appropriateness of what happened and what people saw. It was a headline-grabbing scandal. And I can't tell you if a heavily pregnant Jennifer Buchanan watched the game, or if Shane, her former boyfriend, the father of her child, was watching either. What we do know is that on February 3rd, Jennifer went to the hospital where she gave birth to her daughter, Nevaeh Buchanan. Jennifer loved her tiny daughter and chose her name, Nevaeh, which is heaven spelled backwards, because she said Nevaeh was a little slice of heaven. Having this tiny baby in her life, being a mother, well, it wasn't enough to keep Jennifer on the straight and narrow. She was in and out of trouble. It's alleged that Jennifer struggled with drug use and turned to crime to support her habit. In August 2006, when Nevaeh was just a toddler, Jennifer is arrested and charged with first-degree home invasion. On December 7th, she is sentenced to a year in prison. Sherry Buchanan, Jennifer's mother and Nevaeh's grandmother, she applies for custody of the child and Nevaeh stays with her grandmother while Jennifer serves her sentence. When Jennifer was released, she wanted to do better. She hoped to improve her own life and improve the relationship she had with her child. Nevaeh's father, Shane, well, he wasn't much better. He rarely saw Nevaeh. In fact, Shane moved out of state before Nevaeh was born. It appears that he had little interest or engagement in the life of his oldest child. Little Nevaeh Buchanan considered Sherry Buchanan, her maternal grandmother, her parent. She called Sherry Mommy, not Grandma. Jennifer was someone she knew, but her presence in Nevaeh's life was, at best, inconsistent. In the spring of 2009, Jennifer, Nevaeh, and Sherry Buchanan moved into an apartment at the Charlotte Arms in the city of Monroe. The complex is small. Nine three-story apartment buildings in a U-shape around a courtyard that has a pool, green space, and plenty of parking. Sherry worked at a local market. Information on Jennifer's employment, if any, is scarce. The small family hadn't lived there very long, only a few months. Long enough for Nevaeh to meet other kids and make friends in the complex. Nevaeh, Jennifer's little slice of heaven, she was growing up. Earlier in May, she completed preschool. There was excited talk about starting kindergarten in the fall. The apartment where they lived was across the way from the elementary school, an easy walk for Nevaeh when school began. Nevaeh is not going to start kindergarten. Five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan, a shy tomboy with long dark hair and a wide smile, is going to meet a tragic end before the weekend is through. Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start of summer for most of us in Michigan. The pools open, boats are taken out of storage, cabins and campsites up north are readied for an influx of travelers looking for a quiet retreat from life downstate. The Buchanan family didn't have room in their budget for a trip up north that weekend, and Sherry Buchanan was scheduled to work, so they were staying close to home. 
The apartment had a pool and friends and family lived nearby. Perhaps there were plans to go into the city of Monroe on Monday to watch the parade, or to have a barbecue with friends and family to start the summer off right. But that Sunday afternoon? It's still spring, but it smells like summer. Kids at the apartment complex laughed and ran and played among the scents of cut grass, smoke from barbecues, and a whisper of exhaust from cars and motorcycles. Nevea was in and out of their garden-level apartment that day, playing with other kids in the complex and enjoying a warm late spring day full of sunshine. It was about 5.45 p.m. when Nevea came inside to change clothes. She'd had an accident. She'd wet her pants. Jennifer would later say that Nevea was potty trained, but she wasn't good about taking breaks to relieve herself. And on that Sunday, Nevea returned to the apartment to change into fresh clothes. Jennifer was on the sofa watching television, John and Kate plus eight, when Nevea arrived with soiled pants. Nevea went to her room and changed into long denim shorts, and she was headed outside when she took a detour into the kitchen. Jennifer looked up from the television screen long enough to see Nevea help herself to a popsicle from the freezer. Her little girl then announced, I'm going to see Austin and headed out the door again. Austin was one of Nevea's friends in the complex. He was eight years old, and the two played together several times a week. Despite Nevea's potty accident, Jennifer did not leave her spot on the couch. And when Nevea departed, Jennifer didn't keep an eye on her little girl as she left. In 2009 and today, the Charlotte Arms apartments are not what you would call upscale or luxury housing and the apartment where Nevea lived with her mother and grandmother was crowded. In addition to Jennifer, Sherry, and Nevea, one of Jennifer's friends and her daughter were staying with them. That means five people, three adults and two children, in an 860-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom. While the apartment was small and crowded, Nevea didn't mind their living situation. She was a happy little girl, and she had long dark hair and big brown eyes. She was known to be shy, but that did not stop her from finding friends to play with in the apartment complex. There was a group of kids aged about 4 to 11 that tended to run around together and play. On that Sunday afternoon, Nevea was playing with some of those neighborhood kids. It was just after 6 when another child came to tattle on Nevea. She's riding her scooter in the road... While the girl reported Nevea was in the road, Jennifer thought it was more likely that Nevea left the sidewalk to ride her scooter in the parking lot, an activity that was not safe and was frowned upon. The purple and green scooter was one of Nevea's favorite playthings, and she was known to zip through the complex with friends. Jennifer, who was still watching television, was barefoot and looked around for her shoes, intending to go outside and redirect her daughter. Nevea knew better than to ride her scooter in the parking lot. It wasn't safe. Jennifer found her shoes and left the apartment to find her daughter. She called for her, but Nevea didn't appear. Jennifer asked some of the other kids if they'd seen her, but they shrugged. Yeah, we saw her a little while ago. Jennifer checked in at other buildings. She walked over to the playground at the nearby school, places where Nevea had friends and liked spending time. She wasn't worried. Not yet. As she searched for her daughter, Jennifer came across the apartment complex manager and asked if she had seen Nevea. The manager said that she had not, but reassured her that she was probably around and that they would keep an eye out. 
That's about the time that Jennifer found Nevea's scooter, the small green and purple scooter, the one Nevea was riding just a few minutes earlier. When she saw the scooter, that first nip of panic pulled at her gut. Jennifer continued looking for her child, but by 8 p.m., a call went out to the police, and the first alarm is raised. Five-year-old Nevea Buchanan is missing. When the 911 call comes in reporting that Nevea is missing, deputies from the Monroe County Sheriff talk to a tearful Jennifer Buchanan. She tells them that Nevea was barefoot and dressed in a light blue sleeveless top with red and white stripes and long denim shorts. That's what she was wearing when Jennifer last saw her as she left the apartment. Nevea, with her shoulder-length dark hair, was 3 feet 8 inches tall and weighed 45 pounds. The Monroe County Sheriff takes the report of a missing child seriously from the outset, and within 30 minutes of Jennifer's call to police, the parking lot that Nevea may have ridden her scooter in is littered with law enforcement vehicles. And before long, they're joined by press vans, the quiet late spring night punctuated with squawks and squelches of the police band radio system. Neighbors gather on stoops and word spreads like wildfire through the complex. People asking if they've seen Nevea, as the other children who call the Charlotte Arms home are corralled and inventoried. No one else is missing, just Nevea. There are multiple concerns about where Nevea could be. Obviously, the worst case scenario is that she was kidnapped, but there are other considerations. Monroe is never going to be considered a beach town or a resort town or a vacation spot, but Monroe is surrounded with water. Lake Erie on the east end, the River Raisin through the middle, and Lake Monroe, a former quarry, at the south end. Before we go further, let's take a minute to review the setting of this case. Monroe is located about 15 miles from the Michigan-Ohio border, and it's about 25 miles south of the city of Detroit. While it is considered a Detroit suburb, the city aligns more closely with Toledo, Ohio to the south than it does with the Motor City to the north. Monroe is a historic community with a rich history. Long after Native tribes claimed the area, the French arrived and they set up posts in the 1690s. Monroe was once known as Frenchtown. Early French settlers gave a name to the river, River Raisin. It was named for the wild grapes that grow along the banks. And because it was named by the French, it's still called the River Raisin, not the Raisin River. Monroe is a city but it's also a county. And there is Monroe Charter Township located directly south of the city of Monroe. In this episode, I will use the term Monroe to refer to the overall community where Nevea lived with her family during her short life. Monroe rallied around the Buchanans, and the community did all that it could to support the family and assist law enforcement in their attempts to find Nevea. Within 24 hours, there was a ground search. Dogs are brought in. A chopper performs a sweep over the area. The apartment complex is gone over with the proverbial fine-toothed comb. All 180 units of the Charlotte Arms are checked for signs of the missing girl. A tip line is established and calls pour in. More than 200 calls in the first 48 hours. People with tips, leads, and information about the case. And while officers and volunteers from the complex hurriedly search the area, they have a lot of ground to cover before the sun goes down at 9 o'clock that night. The search includes nervous looks around the river and quarry, 
and the police interview Jennifer Buchanan. That night, deputies didn't take her to the headquarters in town on 2nd Avenue. I think they met with her in her apartment. And I can picture uniformed officers crowding around as Jennifer sits on the sofa hoping for news. You can almost see them offering her a mug of coffee or a glass of water as they ask for details. As they ask her to tell them again, what does she remember from that evening? What was Nevaeh wearing? What did Nevaeh say? Who does your daughter play with? Jennifer tells them it was a nice day, and she had all the windows open in the apartment. If Nevaeh had cried out or called for help, Jennifer would have heard it. The high that day, May 24th, was 72 degrees, and the low would be in the mid-50s, a lovely spring day for the area. Then they ask if anything strange happened that afternoon. Aside from the potty incident, which Jennifer explains to them, not really. As Jennifer tearfully recounts details of that afternoon and evening, deputies explore the rest of the apartment, collecting evidence and interviewing neighbors. They talk to the kids that Nevaeh played with, including her friend Austin, and the little girl who tattled to Jennifer about Nevaeh riding her scooter in the road. Interviewing children is tricky and challenging. Interviewing children in a highly stressful, highly unusual situation, such as one where their peaceful home and community is suddenly filled with police and concerned adults, that ratchets up the level of complexity. Children want to please their parents and they want to do what's right. Unfortunately, this can lead them to providing false or embellished information about what they saw, heard, or know about a situation. And if they interviewed these children on Sunday night, they were likely tired, overstimulated, or both. If they were interviewed on Monday, the holiday, then they'd had hours to hear adults talk about their friend, to see adults frightened and worried, to see their apartment complex suddenly populated with men and women in uniform, new faces, strange sounds, fresh boundaries for them, and concerns about how the children spend their free time. When the children are interviewed, Nevaeh's friends will report that they saw her go into the woods, that they saw someone stab her, that they saw her in a green minivan. The children's reports are inconsistent and point the investigators in different directions. Just after midnight on Memorial Day, May 25th, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office issues an Amber Alert for five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan. They didn't have a vehicle description, but they knew where Nevaeh was last seen and what she was wearing, and they knew that the more people were looking for her, the better. As the sun rises over the Charlotte Arms, there are a lot of stressed families. They're worried about Nevaeh, and they're worried about their own children. The area around the complex is crowded. Not only is the Sheriff's Department on site, the FBI and the Michigan State Police have arrived to assist in the search. Jennifer Buchanan is hollow-eyed from lack of sleep. Her mother, Sherry, is beside her looking equally grim. The women alternate between agitation, silence, and tears. What Jennifer may not realize is that as she talked with deputies late into the night, giving them the names of her friends, co-workers, associates, she also gave them two names that immediately piqued their interest, 39-year-old George David Kennedy and 48-year-old Roy Lee Smith. Why, yes, she had dated one of them. 
Kennedy and Buchanan were romantically involved in 2008, and the relationship lasted for several months. Jennifer met Kennedy when she was reporting to her probation officer. What Jennifer Buchanan did not mention to police as she told them about her friends is that she knew both Smith and Kennedy are registered sex offenders. Kennedy was convicted of fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct and accosting children for immoral purposes in January of 2002. In May of 1998, 26-year-old Kennedy raped a 15-year-old girl behind a Monroe County gas station. The unnamed victim told police that Kennedy, quote, forced her to kiss him and offered her marijuana to loosen her up. For this crime, he was sentenced to one to two years. He was also sentenced for a second-degree home invasion charge for an incident that happened in August of 2000. For that, he received two to 15 years. Kennedy was paroled in July of 2007. As investigators explore the relationship between Jennifer and George Kennedy, learning that he's got a thing for young girls and he's a repeat offender, this makes Buchanan labeling Nevaeh's relationship with him as, quote, fatherly, very concerning. Then we look at Roy Lee Smith, the 48-year-old who was taken into custody. It seems that Smith and Kennedy were friends, and they decided to swap vehicles. Kennedy offered Smith his Ford Thunderbird in return for Smith's van. And listeners, this jumps out at me. I cannot ever envision a scenario where I would swap cars with someone. I mean, you might ask a friend to borrow a car for a day or two, maybe for a moving project or a special event, but a permanent thing to just trade cars? I don't see it. So investigators put the bulk of their attention on Jennifer's former boyfriend, George Kennedy, but they're also looking at recently paroled Roy Smith. We can't forget about Jennifer's friend, Roy Smith. When reporters from ABC News talked to Smith's mother, she defended her son, quote, I don't believe my son has anything to do with this. Donna Smith said, adding that his previous conviction was because a 24-year-old girl he was with, quote, decided to holler rape. According to the Sex Offender Registry, Roy Smith was first registered on May 13, 1993. He went on to serve 15 years in prison. Roy Smith was on parole for, quote, multiple sexual misconduct convictions. The Detroit Free Press reported that in May 1991, Smith raped a woman in his car at Sterling State Park and then assaulted her again along a lane near Cold and Timber Roads in Exeter Township. Because of this, he was convicted of third-degree sexual misconduct and sentenced as a habitual offender, receiving 15 to 50 years. Now, Jennifer's relationship with Smith was different than it was with Kennedy. They didn't date. The relationship was not romantic. Rather, Smith would pick her up in parking lots, and they would go for a drive or get something to eat. Apparently, their relationship was all about the company. Investigators are looking at both men. And they're wondering why it is that Jennifer Buchanan has surrounded herself and in turn her young daughter with some very questionable characters. Quote, my relationship with George was just friends. That's what Jennifer Buchanan told my Fox Detroit. Quote, I haven't dated him for a year and a half now. George had a good relationship with my daughter as a father figure, always there for her. If he came around, she'd see him and she'd run up to him and she'd hug him. Listeners, picture it. Your daughter, your little girl, her face breaking into a smile at the sight of your sex offender boyfriend. 
Then imagine you allowing him to touch her at all, let alone put his arms around your child, her voice, your child calling this man daddy. Ken Lanning spent decades working for the FBI, and his specialty was crimes against children. One of his areas of interest is exploring the ways that sexual predators gain access to child victims. Lanning was interviewed in the press during the Michael Jackson trial and again during the trial of Penn State football assistant coach Jerry Sandusky. Lanning said that one of the easiest ways for men seeking a child to abuse is to pick someone in their own family, perhaps a niece, a grandchild, or a cousin. Failing that option, they will befriend or become romantically involved with a woman who has children. These women, according to Lanning, who invite these men into their lives and the lives of their children, some of them end up allowing the abuse to happen, turning a blind eye to warning signs or blatant abuse, while other women, they fall into the category that is, they should have known. According to a 2009 interview with ABC News, quote, adult human beings tend to believe what they want or need to believe, Lanning said. Someone to tell her she's pretty, someone to support her. The more desperate she is, the greater the need, and the more vulnerable she becomes to this. And listeners, a few months after Jennifer met Kennedy, she found out he was on the sex offender registry. When she confronted him about it, Kennedy told her the sex with the 15-year-old was consensual. And let's stop right here, because 15-year-olds cannot consent to sex, particularly with an adult man in his mid-twenties. But Jennifer believed in second chances, so she let him stay in her and Nevaeh's lives. But she said she never left him alone with Nevaeh, and there was always another parent there with the two of them. And at the end of the day, Memorial Day 2009, five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan has been missing for 24 hours. On May 26th, everyone is looking for Nevaeh. Friends, family, community members, and police are searching high and low. The woods, backyards, creeks, ditches, and even shopping centers looking for the missing child. Posters about her disappearance sprout up all over town. On May 27th, divers search two Monroe-area quarries. Also on the 27th, Jennifer, cooperating with police, was interviewed for hours, and she's going to be interviewed a couple more times before all of this is over. On May 28th, Nevaeh's father, Shane, he came in from Toledo to help search for his daughter. At this point, he had not seen Nevaeh in three years. The calls? They keep coming in to police. They receive literally hundreds of tips. To keep up with the sheer volume of information coming in, there are around 100 federal, state, and local officers investigating. By the end of the week, police will have received over 700 tips. Because of the manpower they had, they were able to look into most of them. Police interviewed more than 200 people. Many of them resided at the Charlotte Arms. And one tip came in from Nevaeh's eight-year-old friend. This friend said they saw a man stab Nevaeh in the woods after she disappeared. But it soon came out that the friend didn't see anything. It was just more information that led them nowhere. May 29th and Nevaeh is still missing. Police are laser-focused on George Kennedy. In his motel room, they found three miniature metal motorcycles and photos of a girl that looked like Nevaeh. They tested blood that they found on some of his possessions. These were a towel, shorts, and a sharp-edged tool. All of these items were found within his hotel room and van. 
Police also tested blood found on the wall near a sink at the motel, but none of the blood was a match to Nevea. A candlelight vigil attended by hundreds of people is held at the Charlotte Arms apartment complex. And the media, they also took a great interest in the case. Her story appeared on America's Most Wanted and The Nancy Grace Show. On May 31st, 64-year-old James Easter is taken in for questioning by police. Easter was a retired steel factory worker who loved his dogs and, as we'll come to find out, he also loved pornography. In the 1990s, he had been convicted of indecent exposure. Easter's explanation for the charge was that he went behind the library in Monroe and took off his clothes to, quote, get a little sunshine. He was caught by two boys, and his sentence was one year of probation. Easter's girlfriend? Guess where she lives. If you chose the Charlotte Arms, you're correct. And Easter was there the day before Memorial Day visiting her. So he's there the day that Nevaeh went missing. The FBI interviewed Easter for 12 hours until he was able to show them receipts. I mean, literally, he showed them receipts that gave him an alibi as to where he was at the time Nevaeh disappeared. After his interview, Easter went home and started burning some of his personal items. When questioned about the destruction of his belongings, he said he burned receipts, TV dinners, and a sex toy. He said he burned the sex toy because he was ashamed of having it. So, police are watching Easter, and they see him start the fire, so they make their move and put him under arrest. They held him on charges related to burning property. And while he's being held, police search his home, and they pull out over 100 tapes of pornography. When the police went through the burn pile, they found the sex toy, as well as a roll of duct tape, gloves, and several Barbie dolls. When asked about the dolls, James said they were for his granddaughter. Police also found blood outside the bathroom, behind the bathroom faucet, and on Easter's quilt. Easter said he had no idea how the blood got there. But when it's tested, the blood does not belong to Nevaeh. Easter was released after being cleared as a suspect. He said that being a suspect ruined his life. He was no longer allowed to be around his granddaughter because his family was afraid of him. Someone in his neighborhood tore down his Christmas lights and broke out one of his windows. Another one of his neighbors, they admitted to the Detroit Free Press that they put up surveillance cameras and taped his movements around the clock. They also followed him just to see what he was up to. On June 2nd, the FBI puts on a press conference, and they tell the public that it could take years for police to solve Nevaeh's disappearance. They also say that they are looking for two vans, a green van and a silver van, and they were also questioning an ice cream truck driver about Nevaeh's case. Investigators and volunteers are still handing out Amber Alert flyers in Michigan and Ohio on June 3rd. Social media pages, internet bulletin boards, and websites all popped up, all looking to aid in the search for Nevaeh. The FBI would announce a $20,000 reward for information on her case someone else put up an $8,000 private reward. But none of these are going to help the case, and they're not going to help searchers find Nevaeh. The discovery of her body is made in the strangest of ways. On Thursday, June 4th, Guy Bickley, his son, and his father went fishing along the banks of the River Raisin. They were in Raisinville Township at, quote, where the river bends to nearly touch the roadway. The three fishermen had barely settled in when they noticed that the earth where they were sitting wasn't quite right. 
Bickley then smelled the distinct odor of a decomposing body and saw what he described as, quote, a block of poured cement. He described it as looking like, quote, someone dug a hole, then poured a bag of concrete mix on top of the body. The fisherman placed a call to 911. It would take two hours for police to show up, and I don't know why it took them this long or if they just didn't take them seriously or what. Once police arrive on scene, they are pretty sure that they've found Nevaeh Buchanan, but they can't tell for sure. They would have to do a DNA test because the remains were too composed for Nevaeh's mother or grandmother to make an ID. The site where she was found, it appeared that she had been buried and then concrete was poured on top of her body. Monroe County Sheriff Tillman Crutchfield said there were no visible signs of abuse or trauma and that Nevaeh had been buried along the river for quite a while. He also said the police department was looking for a disturbed person who murdered an innocent child. Sheriff Crutchfield would later theorize the killer would have to be a local person, someone who knew the area. The riverbank was searched over a period of two days. FBI Special Agent Andrew Arena said, quote, every inch of soil, it was sifted, and that it's tedious and honestly a little dangerous for our searchers to work along the steep riverbank. When Nevaeh's family heard the news, it said that they howled with grief. And the next day, a memorial was set up at the Charlotte Arms apartment complex. It was made up of stuffed animals and balloons. And again, I can't help but think of the many children who lived there, kids who knew Nevaeh and watched as she disappeared from their lives. Many of these kids are now adults or almost adults, and I'm sure this incident impacted them greatly. On June 8th, Jennifer was interviewed by Nancy Grace. Jennifer walked off set during the interview after Nancy questioned Jennifer's account of events. The interview is available to watch on YouTube, and you may find, as I did, that Nancy went hard for Jennifer, and it's no wonder that the grieving mother walked away from the interview. If you study Jennifer during the interview, she appears very flat, very slow to respond. It's clear that her daughter's death is weighing heavily on her. In order for Nevaeh's body to be positively identified, her DNA is sent to the Michigan State Police. If you're wondering why they couldn't use dental records, it's because she was only five. She had not yet seen a dentist or had x-rays. And a parent or family friend could not make an identification because her body was in such an advanced state of decomposition. Nevaeh's funeral was held on June 13th. 1,500 people attended the visitation and 700 attended the funeral. A Harley-Davidson hearse carried the tiny coffin and was escorted by at least 100 motorcycles. After the funeral procession wound through the community, Nevaeh was buried at St. Joseph Cemetery. It only took a few days after the funeral for Nevaeh's story to fade from the headlines. A lot of people, including Nevaeh's family and her community, were outraged by this. How could the news not cover something so horrific as the murder of an innocent little girl? Why wouldn't they be dedicating all the resources they had to finding out who killed her? Jennifer gave an interview to the Monroe News on June 20th. In it, she claimed to have no idea what happened to her daughter. She said that many people had shunned her or treated her poorly. And this wasn't the first time Jennifer made this kind of claim. In a different interview days earlier, she said, quote, I'm completely innocent. I didn't have anything to do with my daughter's disappearance. I don't do drugs. I hardly ever drink. I don't owe anybody any money. I have hardly any enemies. I don't understand who would come up and take my child. 
In the absence of someone to blame, people placed blame on Jennifer. On July 14th, Nevea's autopsy results are released. The autopsy found that Nevea died of asphyxiation. She suffocated after inhaling dirt. This led investigators to believe that she was either, quote, forcibly held in the dirt, or that she was buried alive. A toxicology report came back negative. Jennifer said police told her that her daughter was not sexually abused, but investigators have not formally confirmed this. Listeners, I suspect that parts of her autopsy are being withheld to assist in making a case against the person or persons responsible for her murder. By August 25th, the tips that were once overwhelming had slowed. On the same day, Justice for Nevea was formed. This group, which works tirelessly on behalf of Monroe-area kids in need, would later announce a $2,500 reward. And you can find Justice for Nevea on Facebook. On the one-year anniversary of Nevea's disappearance, May 24, 2010, Justice for Nevea held a children's party and information rally. The rally included games, food, self-defense classes, and child safety presentations. In October, an anonymous donor offered $25,000 toward the Justice for Nevea reward, bringing the total to $27,500. This reward would go to anyone who could provide information about Nevea's disappearance and murder. Crime Stoppers also offered a $2,500 reward, and the Nevea Buchanan Task Force offered a $20,000 reward. But these large sums of money available are not enough to bring in a tip or lead that would identify Nevea's killer. Things were quiet in the case until May 23, 2012, when Sheriff Crutchfield said investigators were close to an arrest. He backtracked just six days later when he said they were, quote, back to square one. It must have felt awful to think you were close to solving the case, only for it to slip away and have to start over again. And that same year, Jennifer is still maintaining her innocence in the media. She said, quote, I have nothing to do with this. If I did, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Jennifer also revealed that she had not been in contact with the police in almost two years. In May 2014, five years after Nevaeh's abduction and murder, investigators told Monroe News that they think they know who killed Nevaeh. The suspect was interviewed extensively but did not confess. There wasn't probable cause, which is needed to make an arrest, so the suspect was released. As of 2014, the suspect was in prison on a different felony, and I believe that this person is still incarcerated to this day. On May 31, 2019, Justice for Nevea held a memorial in Monroe for the 10th anniversary of her abduction and murder. There was a dinner, guest speakers, and a children's choir. There was also a child identification service. Justice for Nevea revealed a bench dedicated to Nevea placed near the river where her body was found. When interviewed by Channel 7 Action News, Nevea's grandmother, Sherry, said that she believes Nevea knew the person who took her. She said, quote, Nevea had to know this person for her to go with them. Everybody around that apartment said they heard no screaming or nothing. Jennifer moved out of the apartment she shared with her mother and moved in with a friend. She worked towards finishing her GED, and she never stopped working toward getting justice for her daughter. As for Sherry, she also moved out of the apartment, relocating to her sister's home in Monroe. In October 2016, George Kennedy neglected to register as a sex offender. Five months later, he was sentenced to a maximum of two years probation. 
In April of 2017, he again did not register as a sex offender, so he was sentenced to a maximum of three years probation. He was discharged in January of 2019. As of today, he is still on probation and will be on probation through the end of 2020. According to the Sex Offender Registry, Kennedy was first registered on January 18, 2002. His last verification was March 2, 2020, and his registration expires in April of 2036. As of today, Kennedy is noncompliant and has failed to verify his whereabouts. His last known address was in Temperance, Michigan. Roy Smith was first registered as a sex offender on May 13, 1993. His last verification was April 1st, 2020, and he must stay on the list forever. Roy's current address is in Monroe, Michigan. As of this writing, no one has ever been charged with Nevaeh's disappearance and murder. Police continue to investigate any tips they receive. If you have information regarding this case, contact the Monroe County Sheriff's Office at 734-240-7530 or by email at Tell the sheriff at monroemi.org. All leads and tips can remain anonymous. And listeners, if you're looking for ad free content, consider supporting Already Gone on Patreon, where all episodes are released early and ad free for your listening pleasure. Visit patreon.com slash already gone to learn more. This week's episode was researched and written by me and Brittany Martinez. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.